to the official November edition of the Thrivecast. I'm Jason. And I'm Greg. And you and don't have a voice. I don't have a voice because I just yelled it out doing my uh, Samuel thing. L. Jackson impersonation. That's fine. Well, we're pumped to have Ron Baker. Yes, Ron, welcome Ron to Baker. the Thrivecast. Give it up for Ron Baker. So, hey, so we always got to say thank you. So we're doing Deeper Weekend Live. So if you're listening to this on the podcast, in, out there in radio land... This is not a radio show. Podcast World. Podcast World. So Zero is a big sponsor of ours for for Thrivecast, so we're so thankful for those guys. Right. Uh, Do you know how many users they have? About 50. More than zero. Hi-yo! Hi-yo! The comedy keeps coming. (laughs) Okay. How many, wait, how many is it? Is it, it's it's over five hundred thousand, right? Yeah, that's a five. That's a five with 600. Five, over six hundred thousand, which six hundred thousand, oh, which is a six with five zero. So we all, so we have our regular Zoho and Avalara are our regular sponsors. So we're thankful for those guys. So thank you everybody for flying all the way yes. to um, Greenville as Greg pours another cup of bullet bourbon mm-hmm. we do not need him to drink any more bullet bourbon so so hey did y'all enjoy the teaching today from ron baker mm-hmm. was that awesome awesome some more mind-blowing stuff so we had ron ron we had you instead of teaching on pricing well you did teach on pricing we had you focus on economics a little bit um so thank you for doing yep. that yeah um, totally you, you did drop a bomb on us when we left today so um it was about the 25 uh, best business books you've read, right? In the past two years, I 15, think. 15, I think, yeah. Okay, 15. 15 business <laughs> books. Sorry, felt like 25, right? <laughs> oh, God. Did you read them all, Ron? Right, and Ron did. You do read all the words, right, in I the do. books? Yeah. Okay, Ron reads all the words in the book. If so I like it. If, I if, like if it. you like it, okay. So I think, I think the, the last book you mentioned was The Future of the Professions, right? right. And so that was by two attorneys, a father and his son, I'm not or, sure if they're attorneys, actually. Okay. Uh, the rich, Richard might be. I'm not sure about the kid. Okay. So right. he's just freeloading off his father. Right, right, right. Right. <laughs> right. So, so the thing that scared me most about that book was it seemed like they were predicting the obsolescence of the accounting industry. Is, is that kind of the takeaway of the book? Yeah, it's, it's going to be dismantled. It's going to look different in the future because yeah. it's gonna, we're going to work differently in the future than we have in the past in the traditional model. Okay, right. which is which is weird because we've talked a lot about how like the commodity work that's going to go. I mean, that's that's writing on the wall that the commodity work is going away. But it seems like this book said that even the not even the value add work is going to be going away or at least being concentrated to fewer and fewer professionals. Is that right? Did I understand your words yes, right? That's right. And actually that the professions could go away or at least Period. shrink in relevance and influence. Right. They're no longer the gatekeepers of the expertise uh, that you know that the tra- 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 that their traditional role was as yeah. gatekeepers of you know the knowledge. So you listed a lot of ways in which um, they're they're becoming com- communities. I think right that are that are that don't need actually a lawyer or an accountant or even a doctor yep. in some cases. So I guess that's the future of what we can expect. Probably is um, our peers helping us right. Um, yeah, communities of experience where like patients of doctors share their medical issues and what treatment works, what drug has what effect, and those types of things. So it just it just because remember, folks, that knowledge is a rival, a non-rival asset, right? If I give you knowledge today, hopefully, uh, now you have it, but I still have it. 
right? You can take it and, and make it grow, and then it, it escalates. So it's not like this Coke. If I drink more of this Coke, you have less, and it can only be at one place at one time. Knowledge can be in all sorts of places at one time, and that's, part, that's a big part of their argument as well. I don't think knowledge can be in the town of Swamp Bottom, Mississippi. <laughs> From my research, I have some questions about the future of the professions. I'm 43 years old. Am I going to die before the accounting profession? Yes or no, Ron Baker? <laughs> it's a yes or no question, Ron Baker. Predict it. Are you going to die before the accounting profession? Yes. Um, probably not. Good. Okay. So we're really talking about a problem for my children. <laughs> Which we're okay with dumping it on our kids, yeah. right? <laughs> like a lot of things. Like global warming. Ron, tell us what you think about global warming. <laughs> this is an accounting podcast. Okay. So. Second question. Second question. What can I do? Because seriously, it seemed like like a lot of the stuff you said, you talked about craftsmen, that craftsmen were going to continue even after the death of the professions, right? Or the book you, talked about it. Yeah, yeah. The fact that their concept is that the top performers in every right. profession, there'll still be a need for the best brain surgeons, the best teachers, the best professors. The best accountants? Probably. Probably. Yeah. How do I become that guy? Good question. <laughs> I know, because I'm not no that answers. guy right now. I don't want to be that guy. So right. I, Wait, I, why, why don't you want to be that guy? Because I think it would require too much studying. <laughs> I'm basically lazy, that's why. Yeah. So what, Well, that's a good question. Let's say that this happens and you, you outlive the demise of all the professions. You speak to the professions. If all the professions die, so does your livelihood. What would you, how, what would you do... What's Ron Baker's plan to survive the profession a a a apocalypse? Uh, I, I don't have a plan. I, I uh, <laughs> Dr drinking a lot of bourbon, smoking cigarettes, and riding a motorcycle fast. <laughs> Me too, Ron. I, I mean, I, I didn't want to sound like a buzzkill at the end of the day and leave everybody on a. Well, you did. You I did. Know, I know. I you know. were that. Thanks a lot, Ron. And that's why we had a bourbon tasting party tonight. We were going to have a Kool-Aid sipping party, a crystal light party. But, but I think it's like some of the folks said when we, like when we were talking about this book, some of you guys said, and I think it's a really fair point, that, okay, yeah, we can talk about this apocalyptic future of the professions dying, but... We're also very resilient species, and we'll adjust. We will adapt. I don't know what that's going to look like because creativity and innovation is always going to take us by surprise, but I do believe we're going to adapt. So it's not something I'm going to lay awake at night and, and, you know, in a cold sweat and worry about, but I do think these guys are looking out the window and seeing a trend, and I think they've backed it up with some empirical evidence. So it's a real interesting thing. I, I'm more interested in our profession's response to it. But, and maybe a response is not to worry about it, which I think some of our talk could be, could be scary if it takes us down the road of we are becoming obsolete, but it could be an opportunity, right? I, I, think, that, I think there's an enormous opportunity. I'm not sure what it is yet because I haven't had time to process all this, but I do, you know, behind every threat, there's an opportunity, and I yeah. think there's multiple opportunities here. At the first sign of this happening, I'm bailing out of the accounting profession, <laughs> and I'm going to become a rapper is what I'm going to, and I'm going to lay down my beat for you right now. Uh, okay. 
I know this sucker and his name is Ron. He was in Greenville, but tomorrow he's gone. <laughs> That's good. That's um, good. I, I, I rap a rap tune. It's not a song. <laughs> what rhymes with That's song? What I, it, what I, I'm, wearing, I'm wearing boxer briefs. I ain't wearing no thong. That's how, that's how my rap goes. That's good. No, okay, so let's talk about real ways. Alexis, real. Alexis, I'm going to need you. No. Okay, so let's <laughs> back to Jason. Jason, take it. So, <laughs> so, no, 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 this is not, we're going, this is not going well. No more bourbon tastings at Deeper Weekend. No more, we're not doing, it's, we experiment, right? We have experimented and we will never do that again. Beer is all you people can handle. Y'all are too dirty minded and the bourbon brings it out. And so... You're, you're behaving, that's right. No, I want to know how we can really uh, progress as a profession. So if the response is that technology was one of the things we talked about, is eliminating some of our job. Actually, we've been saying that for a long time. Right. That book was very convincing, though, for you. Right, right. Probably more so than a lot of books. Yep. Um, so I think we need some ideas of how we could become uh, a different profession. And I think, so there were some questions when people were talking about, what are some things we're doing now that we're pricing for and making money mm -hmm. that computers and things like that cannot take away from us? Um, and we got some examples. I got Melissa Bunton, if she was here. She shared a great example with me, if you don't mind me sharing, um, that um, you know, there were some clients that needed her help uh, in uh, debt counseling. Sure. Um, and she, you know, she did her, her options and anchor priced them on the high one, which was, I'm going to be here for you and help you through some of your shopping issues. Um, and they bought that one. And she does help them. She actually counsels Wait, them what? through some of her issues of struggling with the, creating debt. The people with debt problems chose the most expensive option. <laughs> she, now, in all fairness, she told them, she said, you here's, really probably should spend a, this money on lower barrel. Here's a fish. <laughs> pow, 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 pow. Sorry, how Melissa, you, we got how you, you into this. That's how you price. <laughs> bam, bam. <laughs> In all fairness, she said, you probably should spend this money on lowering your debt, but I can't help you. Because you should spend this money on groceries. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Sorry. But... The, what I'm trying to say is these people trusted her enough to, for, the, for her to be with them when they struggle with the issues that are causing the debt. Anyway, she's a financial planner, right? So she's helping them with some of their, their deepest, darkest struggles, and they're thankful, and they trust her, and they're right. paying for her for that, and you cannot obsolete that, right? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think there's always going to be a role for humans right. somewhere um, I, I think the thing, the thing is we might have to move from being the expert and the one that dispenses the knowledge to realizing that the customers that come to us already have a lot of knowledge yeah. from whatever source, mm. and maybe the best we can do is be a curator for them and guide them through different right. uh, levels of expertise. So I, I love their metaphor about the, the, the sage on the stage, you know, the teacher lecturing versus the guide on the side. Maybe we're going to have to become our customer's guides and, the, and, and sell 
our, our access to them so they can access us mm. when they want a second, third, fourth, a hundredth opinion, whatever. So, mm -hmm. it, so instead of pricing a transaction like a tax return, we start pricing access. Access. Yeah. Uh, the need to give empathy at times when they need it, being yep. available at certain times. So those, what we're, what we're realizing is those things have a price. Yeah. Sure. And I think most of us are actually not even offering the service as something right. they can purchase. Right. And right. So we're going to have to be creative about what we sell. Absolutely. Really, right. And, and we've yep. got to ask ourselves, do we want to be the sage on the stage or the guide on the side or the teacher in the bleachers, or the professor in the dresser, or the mentor in the cementor? Because those are, those are the questions facing us. Right. And, and nobody wants to be the, the cementor. No, no one wants to be the mentor I mean, or the cementor. that's somebody in Harry that's Potter. Like some, yeah, that's some Han Solo carbonite stuff right there. No, it's in Harry Potter. It's, a, it's that some mentor? Harry Potter Voldemort. Oh, that's it. The Dementor. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a joke, right? So, what? <laughs> it was not a good joke. I realize that. I'm not the comedian. So, so I'm wondering, um, Ron, so tell us about um, options. So, we did talk about pricing a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I want to get into options. <laughs> I do. For I've, got really? I've got questions. Can I start with my question? Okay. Okay, yeah. here's the thing. First off, I want to know how, okay, I, I backed myself into a corner with options. Ron, how many options do you tell people they're supposed to have? Three. Three. You guys know that, right? Three options. You can talk. This is a live podcast. You do. And if you have questions, we didn't talk about this. Jennifer's got a mic. If you got a question, raise your hand and you can ask a question too. But here's the thing that happened to me. I was trying to price a speaking engagement and I wanted to give them three options, but I only wanted to really do one thing. Like I wanted to come, I wanted to say what I already had prepared, and I wanted to go home. So I, I built two other options. One of them was like, was just, I can't even remember what, what it was, but the low one was just really crappy. It's like, I'll come and I'll like shake your hand and then I'll go home and you have to pay me $500. And then there Which was the one where, that's a crappy option. That's and then my middle option. option was, I'll, you know, for like, I don't know, two, 2,500, 3,000 bucks, I'll come, I'll give my, my speech that I've given a lot and, I'll, and that's it. And then I said, or you could get my deluxe package for like $10,000 and it, this i'll do customized uh content for you i'll live tweet your entire conference and i will be the mc of your award ceremony and i'll be that uh, mr january for your topless accountants <laughs> firm calendar so which one did they pick they picked the ten thousand dollar i didn't want to do any of that and i didn't think they'd do it and they did, and luckily, before the time came, they were acquired by another accounting firm <laughs> that, re that realized they made a horrible decision <laughs> with me. A naked so, Greg. Uh, so what do you? So, but but really, I think that's a challenge people have is that they have a hard time. They, you know, you're supposed to have three, right? Have you guys had problems getting yeah. to three options? Everybody's had that problem, so right? So how do you how do you come up with Don't, three? Is have, there a methodology? Uh, yeah, there's, there, there are some methodologies. I mean, you can, you can vary timing, you can vary terms, you can vary the talent that you assign, the technology you're going to use. Um, 
you know, whether or not you're going to bundle in education or access and what kind of access 24-7, 365. But, you know, Greg, you should experiment. I mean, I think that your $10,000 option should have been you, you don't show up. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Whoa. Back at you from Ron Baker. That was a good one. You had that coming. Drink some more bullet bourbon. Yeah. Oh, right. So Greg is the yeah. Stuber driver. Yeah. So if you're riding with him, don't ride with him. Yeah, the first the first Stuber shuttle is leaving at 1.30 this morning. That's right. So let me ask you this, Ron. This is a real pricing question, Greg. You just go take that. Thank you, Thank Aaron Root. So can can it act, can you actually price in a way to in the high option to limit like or maybe in some of the lower options to take access to yourself out of the options? Oh yeah. Like, can I, a partner say like you can't talk to me if you pick the middle or the lower options? Sure, sure. We've seen that. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of it because I think it 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 uh, it, it places different values on different people within the firm. But I have seen it work successfully. So green card option, gold card option. You don't get access to the partner, but Platinum, you might. Dan Morris is good at this. He's, he, there's only certain options where you can actually get Dan. And if you're below that, you're going to talk to his team. Now, his team's going to be responsive. They're going to be fast, but you're not going to get to Dan. I mean, does that, it, it feels kind of like you're it feels saying a, you're more important than anybody else. It does. That's, that's not the that, intent, I guess. That's one of the things I, I worry about it. But, you know, it works for Dan because he's got to manage his capacity. He can only have so many people that he can handle because the people that do want his access, I mean, they want it now. When they call, he has to respond within five, ten minutes, period. Wow. That's amazing. So he prices that high enough to have the capacity Yep. to do it, which is the key. Absolutely. Pricing He's, something high enough so that you don't have to have a lot of clients. Yep. You're free enough to give to be available in the next yep. 10 minutes. He's their 24-7, 365 concierge, basically, and that means you have to run at a pretty low capacity level. Wow. So your pricing has to make up for that. Wow. So we learned about a concept uh, called anchor pricing. You gave examples of Prada. They have handbags and things like that. Mm -hmm. So explain just the just what anchor pricing is like and how to do it and well right. I guess how accountants can do it. Right, cuz I cuz when I go to buy a boat, I'm a boat, I'm going to ask for it with an anchor and without an anchor. <laughs> and it's the different difference, pricing. The difference between those two, I believe is anchor pricing. <laughs> no. Um, well, it's, it's actually, it all comes out of behavioral economics and how we make decisions, and all decisions are contextual, and that's where we get all prices are contextual. But an anchor, my favorite example, and I don't know if I mentioned this today, is the Le Meridian Hotel in New York's got a $1,000 omelet. Now, wow. you know, and, and, and this is really smart, folks. Uh, on the menu, if you read it close enough, in parentheses, it describes the omelet, and it says, we dare you to expense this one. <laughs> oh. They know they're in category three, right? Oh, right, right, um, right. And but now, when I looked at this, actually, they've sold dozens of these. Believe it or not, thousand-dollar yeah. omelet, but they have a mini version right below it for a hundred bucks. Uh. They've sold hundreds of those. That's great pricing. That's what an anchor does. Once you throw out a number, it it it, it, it seems reasonable, and it just anchors us. And then if something comes in below that, that's going to look like a great deal. Yeah. I still like to remind people you're paying $100 for an omelet. You could right. get it at Denny's for five bucks, you know. But <laughs> no, it's more elaborate than that. But 
So that's the concept of the anchor. So, so basically the concept of the anchor and the options are to, to help your customers perceive higher value in options as compared to the other three in context. Right. Even if they don't buy the anchor. Okay. Rather than them standing alone. So you're saying uh, options that are three help maybe the third option that they pick seem more uh, viable. Right. Or better for them than if they just had one option. Right. The other two in comparison are really is what helping them. Right. Helps the client pick that third one. Uh, Another favorite example of mine is Stanley Marcus, another just incredible guy. He ran uh, Neiman Marcus for many years. His father started the business. But he he, he explained it this way, and I always thought this was brilliant. Neiman Marcus, you know, has the elaborate his and her Christmas catalog, right, every year. And they always have these, you know, million-dollar gifts, his and her Bond BMWs, his and her camels, right? His and her camels? <laughs> yeah, one year they had that. Wow. Yeah, his and her blimps one year, they had his and her submarines. I mean, <laughs> what? Uh, for real? Airplanes, uh, I think even mini yachts or something, or whatever they call them. But um, he said, we, we always made sure that we had $50, $100 presents in Neiman Marcus because the Christmas catalog, those gifts threw a halo over those $50 gifts. So it's like opening up a Cartier box, right? Even if it's a piece of junk inside, it's still got that mystique and that halo of the Cartier box. I mean, you buy it and you don't know what you're getting. No, no, no. Oh, oh, no, no, the cheaper gifts. The person getting it doesn't know what they're getting and they go, ooh, maybe this is But it's Neiman Marcus. Oh, I see. It's Neiman Marcus. And they're the ones with the his and her camels. And this has got to be cool. I got knee-high dress socks from Neiman Marcus. (laughs) So they're buying a brand. And the mystique. So how can we do that? That's cool, mystique. So don't tell our clients what they're buying. Don't tell. <laughs> it's a secret. Don't tell them what their refund is till they get it in the mail. Yeah, <laughs> it's mystique. You have to pay more to know. Well, I'll tell you one. I'll no. tell you one way. We have seen firms do it. If you think about the American Express Black Card, right? The Black Card is invitation only. We have seen firms offer a fourth option of invitation only, and they let their customers know we don't offer this to everybody. It is invitation. But if you get it, you get all these, and you better put some really valuable perks in there, but you can charge a pretty high price for right. that for can the I, right customer. That's good can stuff. I tell you some mystique that happened in here? Erin Rue has some mystique going on on her website, which this is a cliffhanger we left on, on one of our recent podcasts where on her website, there's a little, there's this cool little box that comes up that just, because the thing you want, if you're doing con, uh, content marketing, you want to get people's emails address. And she she just has a little box, comes up, says, hey, put your email address in here because I want it. And it's like, oh, I'm obedient. I'll put it in. But she had a little thing underneath that says, if you put it in here, what, you'll be like on my email list and maybe I'll send you. I'll send you a special surprise. What was it? So I put my email address in, and I got a special surprise. Uh-oh. She sent me some some for real, some, like, art, artisanal fake dog poo in the mail. <laughs> and I was so excited to even be, even be, even have it be an option that I would get a surprise. That's some mystique, people. Mystique but, it right re- there. but it really was, all joking aside, it's really cool to go, I have no idea if I'm even going to get anything by putting my email address in here. But even the, the possibility that that can happen would, would be enough to get a lot of people to give you their contact info, and then you can follow up with them. Am I right? <laughs> I know. So I'm wondering if dog, dog poop is what every client gets that fills in the... 
the email. I hope so. She's ignoring us, Aaron Rude. Do, does every client gets dog poop when they put their email address? Is it just okay. The dog poop is just a Greg uh, incentive. It's a. What's Greg? Oh my God, he's getting dog poop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People who are listening to the podcast didn't hear anything that was just said, but we're laughing at it because <laughs> she didn't have a microphone. Right, we should have done that. Okay, I want to know implementing value price. Bring my bourbon back. <laughs> She's chugging your bourbon. So, okay. So, okay. We got one question from our friend Barrett Young in the audience. Hey, Ron, you just talked about anchor prices. I want to talk about anchor prices that are not within your firm. So, I have an anchor price set in my head that an omelet should cost $5 at Denny's. How do we price against the crappy accountants that all of our clients have had before us? by setting an anchor price. So this is what it's going to cost to come into my company. I don't care what you used to pay, but we still have to deal with that reality of that anchor price. You do. I think you have to differentiate yourself and you have to prove to them that you're, even if your minimum price is way above what they paid before, if they've been burned before, they're probably more than happy to pay it. Yeah. Right? I mean, those are some of the best clients in the world, the one that you clean up prior messes and the prior accountant screwed up. Maybe you amend a tax return or something. Um, but I think your minimum price really um, is driven by this your strategy and what type of customer you want. And I think if you set a high enough minimum price, what you'll find is you'll attract those types of customers. They may be fewer and far between, but once those customers come in and accept that minimum, when they refer you, guess what? Those people have no problem with the minimum because A customers refer A customers and F customers refer F customers. Right. Well, and you even said today that that pricing, it, it's a pr- your pricing transmits information about what the customer is going to receive. So if they if they were getting this crappy service for this really low price and they go, I can't handle this crappy service anymore. They're going to go around. They're going to go, what do you charge? Oh, you charge four times what the other guy did. I need you to do my taxes, because if I go to another person that's this charges the same i'm going to get the same level of service so you talk about that ron because you can make it sound smart well i'll give you an example i think back in the 80s uh maybe this was the 70s 80s dad i don't remember but you know when my father was charging like 25 bucks 30 bucks for a hairstyle supercuts hit the scene and they had $6 haircuts. Now you talk about framing, and they had a big ad campaign, marketing, a lot of that. And my dad's tagline was, well, we fix $6 haircuts. <laughs> nice. Nice. Right. Which, which is totally true, because that, I mean, that happened to me. I did, the, I did the mystery shopping with Liberty Tax a couple of years ago. And, and they, I mean, that was the funniest pricing thing ever, because I spent like, it was like by the third time I met with them, I kept asking, so how much is this going to cost? And they're like, we just need a little more time. We just need the manager to figure it out. And so we'll, we'll tell you that. And so finally, they and I, and I had no idea. I'd never gotten my taxes prepared professionally before. So I was thinking like 200 bucks or something like that to get my 1040 done. And she says, that'll be $602. 
and I'm not sure if I said it out loud or just in my head, you've got to be effing kidding me. <laughs> but immediately she said, but we can give you 50% off today because you're a first-time customer. And she anchored me with that, and then she got me to 301, which was still 100 bucks more than what I was thinking about, and I was okay with that. But then they completely screwed up the return, and Jody Paydar said, hey, Greg, I'll fix your return. And I was like, I know Jody, Jody Paydar is going to charge me a lot more than Liberty Tax, <laughs> but she'll fix it. And then she ended up doing it for free. So what does that tell you about pricing? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. <clears throat> that you're pro bono work. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so let's say somebody, so Ron, somebody, okay, uh, somebody that's listening wants to implement value pricing. What what are some of the the biggest roadblocks to actually doing it accurately? Like, are there some mm. common things people do wrong? Yes, firms they, uh, do wrong. Yes, uh, I think mentally that we just make a lot of mental mistakes. You know, Yogi Berra once said uh, after losing a World Series, "Oh, what happened?" He goes, "We made the wrong mistakes." <laughs> what he meant was, you know, we're making mistakes that we're not learning from, right? And there's no, there's no education from the third kick of the mule, right? Um, I, I think the important thing is to have that value conversation, to back off from, from providing a solution, move off the solution, and have that value conversation and do a deep diagnosis uh, before y you even offer a price. Know what you're getting into. You know, accountants call us or bookkeepers call us and say, you know, they said their books were clean and we got in there and they were a mess. I have no sympathy for that. Right. I mean, right. we're Oops, the professional. I've done that. <laughs> we're, we're the professional, right? Why didn't we go in there and poke around? Well, the client wouldn't let me. Well, then run for the hills. Yeah. You know, yeah. if, if a doctor, if, if a patient tells a doctor, no, you can't take a blood test, well, get out of my office. I'm not going to, what can I do for you? Right. So you've got to do that thorough diagnosis. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. And I think the other big mistake, folks, is underpricing. We just wimp out. So here, here's the best piece mm. of advice I can give you don't price your own stuff. Have your spouse price you. Your, sp your spouse will be brave as a lion pricing right. you because he or she has to live with the consequences of you underselling yourself, yeah. right? So we all need an agent, right? That's mm -hmm. why authors and actors have agents, not because they like to give 15% of their gross. It's because they can get them a better price. And that's what you need. You need an agent or at least another mind. No one mind should be pricing by them in a vacuum. Right. You, you talk about having a pricing council, actually. A value council. A value yeah. council. Talk, talk to us about a value council. Yeah. And, and, you know, whether that's made up from people in your firm or maybe you have your business coach or a mentor, uh, I wouldn't recommend competitors because that's uh, <laughs> quasi-illegal. The next deeper weekend will be in a prison. Uh, <clears throat> but Oops. Have, have, you know, even family members. I mean, people think that uh, to be on the value council that they have to be CPAs and they have to understand the work and they have to understand mm. the time. Bullshit. You can price, a good pricer <clears throat> can, uh, can price anything. And they don't have to really understand it, right? So, I mean, the guys who price airline tickets, they don't know how to fly a plane, but they know how to price the flights and the passengers. Mm. That's interesting. So, so uh, just don't price your own work. Just don't price your own work because you're gonna you're gonna sell yourself short. Do you do you have a story of because everybody talks about because because the biggest thing if you're trying to go from a traditional like hourly billing 
model to a fixed price value pricing model. The, the biggest thing is you just have to try it and everybody makes mistakes when they try it. It's a learning curve. You got to march up it. Do you have, do you have any fantastic stories of like horrible fails of people trying like, like they implemented, uh, they tried to try to do a fixed price agreement and they, uh, went bankrupt as a result. <laughs> it, no, because the risk is never that great. I mean, even <laughs> if you really screw it up, what is, I mean, always, uh, actuaries have taught me this. Actuaries said, always look at the, the absolute worst downside. Lawyers think like this too. And what's the downside for mispricing a $1,000 project, $2,000 project? People think, well, I have $4,000 into that. No, you don't. That's your hourly rate times the hours you have into it, which right. includes profit. That, that has nothing to do with your cost. So... I, I think this idea that we're going to, you know, the, the walls are going to fall in if we misprice. Let me tell you something. If you're billing by the hour, you're mispricing now. Mm. Oh, so man. you're saying, okay, so you're saying somebody that would say, I don't want to value price because the risks are high that I won't do it right. You're saying the risks aren't that high. The risks aren't that high. You're giving the price up front, which means you can get a price premium right out of the gate just for that. And then right. if you're given a defined scope of work, you're protected on uh, that scope changing with change orders. That's another thing that people fall down on is triggering right. change orders and, and you know not dealing with scope creep. But I'll tell you another problem we CPAs seem to have. A, a, we think scope seep is a bigger problem. Right. D that is, that is you... Those. That is you doing more work than the client asked for. Because we look at it and go, well, that's not right. We need to fix this. We right. need to clean up those and accounts or whatever. That happens and, and, a lot. It happens, oh, yeah. it happens all the time. That's it's hard. like, I'll do your tax return, and the next thing you know, you're giving a foot massage. And yeah. you're like, how did I end up giving this foot massage? This is outside of the scope document. Put your socks back on <laughs> and get that nasty bunion back in that... Those sensible flats. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. So, yeah, so Dad, I, I got to get a new agent. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get booked on this show, Ron? Your agent sucks, man. Okay, so I got a question. People, people deal with pricing in an ethical way. So, uh, let's, okay, so if they charge 1000 bucks for a tax return, Ooh, they value change. price, and now they're charging 2000 they feel bad. That's, right. a, good, that's, that's a good question. Fair. That's a good question, Jason. I it's like not fair. I know. No, that's a good question. I, I, I think we do have a problem uh, just ethically, uh, not just charging different customers different prices, but feeling like we're gouging a customer. But like we talked about today, if the customer is not coerced into a transaction, then the only reason they entered it is because there's more value than what they're paying. Right. So I think in order to get uh, a $1,000 tax return to $2,000, you are going to have to add more value, whether that's access, quicker turnaround, better payment terms, audit representation if you offer that, unlimited access, whatever it might be. Plus, remember, if you're given a value guarantee, that's an enormous price premium over firms that don't. Wait, talk about What's the value that? guarantee. Yeah, I want to know that? what you mean by that. The value guarantee basically says if you're not happy, Mr. or Mrs. Customer, only pay for the value that you think you received. I love that. And if Meaning that's zero, it's zero. They get to determine. Yep, they get to determine. Yeah, it's like you basically say, here's the price we agreed upon, but my value guarantee says that if you don't believe that you receive that much value, you can just pay me whatever you think my services Absolutely. are worth. Absolutely. How many people just pooped themselves just a little bit yeah. when they heard that? Well, I think we're thinking. Yeah, Ian pooped himself so, a little bit. Okay, but I, I, think, I think we're thinking it's um, they're going to take advantage of us. 
Yeah, and, and no client does. And look, if somebody did pull that trigger um, unjustifiably, right. right? Like they were taking advantage. You you'd did all this work. Anyway. You'd fire them anyway. And I think, <laughs> I think they just did. Talk to your fire. Yeah, yeah. They, they did you an enormous favor. They self-identified themselves as a PETA. And now you can kick them <laughs> off your plane without a parachute. I, I'm happy to give them their money back and never say, hey, you can't come back on board. Boom. Cool. That's a great way to filter your crappy clients out. Charge them four times. Uh, if they complain, fire them. But, <laughs> unless it's justified. But, oh. but, but for those of you who this does scare, maybe your first time here, um, uh, the reason I think you should do a value guarantee is because you do it already. Oh, yeah. All of you offer it already. <laughs> How it, do you do that? How do you, it, well, it's just covert. Nobody knows about it. It's like the CIA. Because everybody in this room is a CPA. What would you do, or, or most people, what would you do if a client complained loudly enough about your bill? What would you do? Refund. refund. Yeah, refund. Write down, write off. Say, pay what you think is fair. So you're already doing it. You're just not getting any pricing muscle for it. You're not getting any marketing differentiation for it. Fred Smith wrote it on the side of his airplane, absolutely positively overnight. And that, biz, <laughs> wow. that guarantee built that business, and it's enabled them to charge a price premium to this day over UPS and other competitors. Well, um, I need to know, you mentioned, you used the term PETA, and I don't know what that is outside of Greek bread in which I occasionally have a sandwich. <laughs> I could, uh, it's pain in the ass, Greg. Pain in the <laughs> ass. <clears throat> Thank you. Pain in the ass, Greg, is redundant. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Ron Baker taking a stab at Greg. Okay, so do we have some audience questions? Barrett Young never has a question, but we're going to let him go. We're going to force him to ask Josh one. we kick Josh out of the room, that's all I can. No, he's back. Oh, Josh is asking a question. All right, Barrett first, then Josh. Barrett Young. Who's the, who's the question for? Is it for me? It's, a, it's for Ron, of oh. course. <laughs> Great. Ron, I have a question about pricing services that you've never done before. So moving from something that I'm comfortable in, accounting services, I'm familiar with the value that I can provide there. I've done tons of proposals for that, but moving into something that I'm not familiar with, more like software consulting, and I'm not sure how that profession prices itself, and I'm not really sure the value that I might provide there, how do I go about doing that? I mean, honestly... I hate to admit this in this room, but I'm almost tempted to just set a weekly rate and start with that just to get some, get my feet wet until I can determine we how much value. We will beat you I, like a dog. I if know. You do that. I'm scared, <laughs> but we love you. Well, if 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 you you really think you're walking into a black hole or something you haven't climbed down the learning curve on, uh, you can always shorten the term. You know, you can do a two month, three month, uh, mm. a scope. Scope what you know. There's things you know, right? Scope that. Maybe build in allowances for some known unknowns and then just put a short time period. And that, that really limits your yeah. risk. And then once you cool. get to the end of that three months, you can reevaluate it and go into phase two. So break right. it into phases. That's what we'd recommend. That's cool. That's like what you know. I love that. That's, a, that's way better than the answer I would have given. What would you have given, Greg? Just, I, I would have said... What would you say? Uh, I would have said, charge them really, really high, and if they say yes, you win. <laughs> <laughs> All right, to a real question from Josh Weig. Yeah, I'd like to see Greg do snakes in a plane. Do you do that as well? <laughs> I can't say the MF word on this, on right. this podcast. So, okay, so question for Ron. So... I think, <laughs> thanks, Greg. <laughs> Moving on. We all got Wonderful. that. Listen, a little late. 
so I think the, the value pricing concept uh, is, is a lot easier to understand when you're a, a sole proprietor, so one-person firm, because you're doing the, the conversation, you're doing the price. But when you look at a bigger organization with 30 or 40 people and you've got multiple people pricing, um, what's like your best example of a company that does value pricing that's, that's a large organization, so like, you know, bigger than 30 or 40 people? Well, I'd point you to Marriott or UPS or FedEx that have, you know, hundreds of pricers or an airline that have entire yield departments d dedicated. That's all they do. So it does scale, but you have to commit the resources to it. And, and I think one of the issues in accounting firms is people sit on the value council, but they still have possibly, you know, customer responsibilities, right? They're still, they're still doing the work. And... It, that's going to really limit their ability to experiment and learn and and uh, you know grow the competency in pricing. So I think once your organization passes a certain size, it, it, it's justified to at least take two or three people and either make them full-time pricers or maybe even half-time pricers. I mean, they can still have customer duties, but we need somebody there in charge because pricing is just too important to profitability not to invest in it. All right, we got another question. Uh, kind of follow-on question to Josh's. When you're scaling from an organization of 30 people to an organization of thousands like the one you're talking about, th what they're selling is, is a fixed thing. At the end of the day, they know how much uh, capacity a hotel room is going to take or how much capacity a seat on an airline is going to take. And when someone's removed fully from touching the work and they're a full-time pricer, but you're working in something where the capacity for each client is different, how can they know that? How can you scale that? That's a great question. I'm thrilled you asked that because I think this is where we need project managers in the firm. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure how many project managers you'd need. Um, it's probably a lot less than the number of pricers. But here's the thing. We need to separate the pricing from the project management. The problem with the timesheet and the billable hours, it combines the two. And, and it, it does both really badly, right? Wow. It's not, timesheets aren't good project managers and uh, uh, hourly billing is not good pricing. And I think we need to separate. If you think about Toyota, uh, if you think about the people that run the Toyota factory, whatever they call them, the plant manager or whatever, they make sure the number of cars get out in the right quantity with the right options, with the right colors, but they're not pricing the cars. The pricers are in another building in another country. Now, the pricers may talk to the factory managers, but they're not in there, and I think we need to separate it. Let the project managers decide what the capacity requirements are, have a conversation with the pricer, and let the pricer do it, right? It's, it's like, think about the airlines. They, the pricer set the airfare, they charge me, they hit my credit card months before they fly me, and then the, the pilot and the flight crew just take care of the flight. That's all they have to worry about. The seat, it's, all, it's already been priced. So the project management's up to the people at the coalface doing the work, but the pricing's already been done. Right. And, and I think we need to separate those two functions. And you, and you talk about, a lot about how airline pricing is a really, that's a model for how you should, pri how you should value price is with airlines, right? Yeah. As in, I've had enough of these value-priced seats on this value-priced plane. <laughs> You're welcome. Basically that, yeah. It's the closest I could come on that. But, but does that make sense to, to separate, to have a project manager in there? Can I grab the microphone again? Uh, kind no. of, but no, you didn't the, the, question. the issue for me is that... <laughs> Let's be honest. No, 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 it's just the examples that you use, they're all 
in all the examples, the commodity that's being delivered is fixed. There's no scope creep on a car. There's no scope creep on a plane flight. There's um, enormous scope creep on a, a plane flight. Okay, let me give you one that has enormous scope creep. My insurance company, I have earthquake insurance on my house. Earthquake insurance company has no clue, none, when the next quake's going to strike, how big it's going to be, what their costs are going to be. How do they give me a fixed price premium? You're changing the example again. So no, I'm giving you something that's more uncertain. Okay. You want uncertain. It's not fixed. It's not a car. It's not a, a flight from point A to point B. It's earthquake insurance when we have no clue when the next one's going to strike or how big it's going to be. How do they price it? So I would say that insurance is priced based on a massive data set and a massive number of people where if you have small variables that change, it's not going to impact the overall business as much. Like, I'm not trying to throw them all out. I'm just, like, the scale that I'm really curious about and that I think Josh was curious about is 50 to 200 employees, right? That, that smaller, you know, you're going from a small business to starting to be more of an enterprise. Right. Um, and I think even in, in a business of that size, you can have projects or scope that changes so much that it can actually affect the But there's line. still going to be a finite range, even in a company with a thousand employees. I mean, Crispin and Porter is one of the biggest firms in the world that doesn't operate with timesheets or uh, billable hours. They're an advertising agency in Miami, Florida. And they have projects because they work for BMW and, and Coke and different large companies. And their projects do have a finite range. So I'd look at that finite range and I'd think about the risk. So it is finite. <clears throat> There's not much difference between your finite range and building a car or flying a plane, right? There's really not if you analyze it right. Cool. So, so we'll have one more question from the audience if you have one. But um, so, Ron, I like what you said, though, breaking up the pricing function and the project management function uh, in a small firm, those are typically held by the owner. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it seems that's the problem with being able to price in a small firm is that we have nobody to go to to delegate the pricing function to, and we're also the ones executing the work, the work. Or, or at least managing it very closely. Um, and so that's hurting us. So anybody else we can involve in that pricing process is going to help us. I think And you so. mentioned the spouse. The spouse. Uh, the the rece receptionists are great to put on the, uh, the, the value council because they know all the customers, right? They know where people, uh, when the phone rings, they know where people run. Do they run to the bathroom or do they anxiously take the call? So they, they have a lot of information about the personality of each customer. Mm. But I do think those two functions really do need to be separated because, the look, the pricer is responsible for profitability. Don't ever forget this. The pricer's neck is on the line to increase the bottom line. That is how they're measured. I, I don't want to sound uh, Machiavellian about it, but that's it. I mean, that pricer that you saw today from Marriott, if he doesn't drive up their profits, he's gone. His his, his, he's on the chopping block. That's his worry. That's why he lies in bed at night freaking out about how much money he left on the table. Um, but that is a completely different function then me pricing your work as you, the accountant, and then I say to you as your pricer, not just go do the work and keep the customer happy. Give them Ritz-Carlton service. Give them Neiman Marcus service. Keep them happy. You're not, your job is not to worry about the profitability of that job. Your job is to take care of that customer and make them a customer for life. My job is to worry about the profit, not yours. That's not, that's not, the, that's not the accountant's job that does the work. I love it.
With that, we're done. Do we? we oh, we got one more. One more question. Sorry. That yeah, one, more, one question more question you talked about. Brian Coleman from the that audience. Was, that was almost the opposite of Scope C. Sorry. We got one more question. We got another one. No, we don't. End of podcast. Sorry. We're trying to cut out the scope. No, sorry. Um, so, so Greg, Greg gave an example before about um, you know the three tiered pricing and and one of his included you know a swimsuit bikini model of Greg. Um, and, and that kind of touches on, on what, Ron, what you brought up before, the, um, the advanced topic of decoy pricing or the, or the dominant price. Is, is, that a, is that always, is that a negative feature or is that something you can kind of play in your hand if you don't, you just don't have enough facts to, to create three options? Oh, I, I, I think you have to have an enormous amount of facts and confidence when you create a decoy or a dominant option because you've got to be, you want to nudge that customer into a certain option. And, and that's going to take you really understanding at a deep level what they need, or at least what you think they need. And so it's, it's, um, it's a strategy that you can certainly deploy, but I wouldn't start with a decoy option. I would just do three options, get some successes under your belt, and then maybe you can start playing with that because it is a pretty advanced pricing strategy. Okay, thank you. Okay. That's it. That's it. We're the November. Year you five. Rock. Deeper weekend. You rock. Yeah. Thanks, you guys. That's it. Thank you so much. Thank you to our sponsors, Zero, yeah. and Zoho, and Avalara. We yeah. love you guys, and we'll catch you next month. For oh, and and practice ignition. Who else we got? And uh, and we got the Biz Inc. We got all those guys. Thank you guys so much for being here, for being part of the Thrivecast. We'll catch you next month for our secret stash episode. So thank you so much for listening to the Thrivecast.